0: Welcome to the Faith Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Carrick Butler II. We believe today's message will empower you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Here's today's message. James chapter 1. James chapter 1. If you're interested in downloading my notes for the series, you can get it through the Bible app on the events section. And also, as always, all the messages we preach here are uploaded for free on the website as well on the Faith podcast. So, if you subscribe to the podcast, it'll download automatically to the device of your choosing. So, James chapter one. We can pick up with verse six. And so, during the midweek from this month as well as the next few months, we'll be teaching a verse-by-verse study of the book of James, followed by a verse-by-verse study of the book of Jude. I've enjoyed ministering this so far. I hope you've enjoyed listening to it. James chapter 1, verse 6. We're going to pick up where we left off. But let him ask in faith nothing wavering. We looked at what asking in faith is last week. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. A double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. This is where we left off last week, and we said that waver with means, yes, to waver, but it means to stagger or to withdraw from. To stagger or withdraw from. We said double-minded means to be two-spirited or vacillating between two opinions. Double-minded means to be two-spirited or vacillating between two opinions. So if you go back and forth on the issue, you will not receive anything from God. So a lot of people say, well, I tried faith. Faith didn't work. No, you didn't work. Because what happens, if you try faith, that means you're going back and forth. And the Bible clearly says that if you go back and forth, you won't receive anything from God. Faith has to progress from asking in faith to standing in faith not being moved by circumstance, pressure, or refinement. We looked at what refinement was last week. So in context of this passage, why would this individual be wavering in their faith? When you're studying the Bible, especially by book, context is king. So why would this individual be wavering, staggering, or tempted to withdraw in their faith? In the context of this passage... The audience, remember, is facing adversity brought by persecution and affliction as a result of the persecution. So what's the point? Don't let circumstances change your faith. Be single-minded with what you believe. Because if they thought one day, well, God will deliver us the next day, there's no help for us, the next day God will deliver us, then they won't receive the deliverance they're believing for. They won't receive the deliverance from the persecution and the affliction. They won't walk in victory over those trials of life. I like something I heard Brother Copeland said or wrote in one of his study Bibles. He said, if a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways, then a single-minded man is stable in all his ways. So how do you become single-minded so you can be stable in all your ways? Whatever you focus on will be the mindset you develop. Whatever you focus on will be the mindset you develop. Your focus, repetition through your eye and ear gate, consistency of your confession, will develop a strong mindset either for good or for bad. Your focus, the repetition through your eye and ear gate, the consistency of your confession, will develop a strong mindset either for good or for bad. Because whatever you continually watch, Whatever you continually listen to, whatever you continually view, will shape how you think and how you will view life. So, if you just spend just a few minutes on social media and only look at what's negative, all the bad that's being reported, all the bad that's happening to people, everything that people are sharing, what's going to happen when you're done looking? You're not going to go, "Oh, that's just too bad." Because if you spend enough time looking at it, next time you get into a similar situation someone saw on social media, you will begin to expect that same thing to happen to you. Why? You've developed a mindset based on what you view. So go to Romans 12. We'll come back to James. In order to be single-minded, we have to develop the right mindset. And developing a mindset takes time. Romans 12 verse 1 says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, or the renovation of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. You must renew and renovate your mind with the word of God until you are single-minded on the issue. So that's not you read the scripture once. That you keep reading and saying and listening to the scripture to your mind is renewed to the fact this is a reality. Now doubt will come to your mind. Sometimes it comes from you, sometimes it comes from the enemy. But if you renewed your mind, just because doubt came, that means the doubt can't stay. Have you built your mindset up to a place where just because a doubt thought comes in, it can be rejected? You have to convince yourself of what the Word of God says on a subject. So feed your faith and starve your doubt through the reading of the Word and listening to the preaching and teaching of the Word. Something I've said several times, especially this month is, it's not enough to just read a chapter or a day and come to church once a week or twice a week. You need to read the word every day and listen to the word being preached to you every day. You have to take that time to allow the word, as we said in John 15, to purge you or to clean you. You also have to let the time so God can work through you more as well as your faith can be built. Because we're living in a time where you need faith. But if you only have your faith built once or twice a week, how strong in faith are you? Go back to James. So we must be single-minded. James chapter 1, verse 9. Pick up where we left off. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. For the sun is no sooner risen with the burning heat, but it withers the grass and the flower thereof falls, and the grace of the fashion of it perishes. So also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. In the book of James, James addresses believers who are poor, middle class, and rich. He also addresses the wicked rich. So there's four different groups you see him addressing. Out of believers, three groups, those who are poor, those who are middle class, and those who are rich. He also addresses the wicked rich. Verses nine through 10 are speaking to believers. So he's addressing poor believers and rich believers. The Amplified Classic Edition says it this way, let the brother in humble circumstances Glory in his high position as a born-again believer called to the true riches and to be an heir of God. And the rich man is to glory in being humbled by trials revealing human frailty, knowing true riches are found in the grace of God. For like the flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. If flowers falls off, its beauty fades away, so too will the rich man in the midst of his pursuits fade away. So saying to the rich believer... They can rejoice in the midst of their adversity because they realize it is not their money that saves them. Because a lot of people think money is the answer for everything. Money can answer a lot of things, but there's some situations money can't handle. Because you can run into a problem that you can throw money at it, but it can't fix. And so he's saying, let them rejoice because money's not going to save them. Money is temporal, but their God is eternal. Now, another question to think, because the thing is you can read the Bible and ask questions. God is not afraid of your questions. But you have to approach the Bible in such a way with meekness, as we see later in James chapter 1, so that the Bible can teach you. So ask this question, why would some of these believers be in humble or poor circumstances? Don't just say, oh, there's some poor believers out there. God's okay with believers being broke and being poor, and being humble circumstances. Context is king. Why would some of these believers be in humble circumstances? Why would some of them be poor? The adversity and affliction affected their financial status. The adversity and the affliction affected their financial status. Here's a very simple way to see it. They were all living in Jerusalem before they were scattered. We looked at that on week one, right? Depending on what they had or how much time they had before they were scattered... Let's say you were a believer who was just ahead of Paul, of Saul before you became Paul. He is trying to capture you. He is trying to kill you. You don't have the time to grab everything you have, so you just flee to another city you're not from. You have nothing, right? You're in humble circumstances. You are broke trying to reestablish your life in another city, looking over your shoulder to see if Saul's on his way. Right? So there's multiple reasons why these believers could be in humble circumstances, but it's still connected to the adversity and the affliction that came against them. A similar attack was launched against the believers in Philippi and Macedonia. So let's look at that, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Context is king. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Starting with verse 1, Paul's writing to the church of Corinth, and he says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia. Philippi is the chief city of Macedonia. How that in a great trial of affliction, so notice, trial of affliction. This is not, oh, they ran into some tough times. An attack of the enemy was coordinated to bring pressure Brought by circumstances, what affliction is, pressure brought by circumstance. So the enemy sent circumstances their way, and it wasn't a small trial, it wasn't a small test, it caused a great trial, a great trial of pressure. But in the great trial of pressure, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liber- liberality. So although they're in a trial, they still have great joy. Although the trial cost them their finances, they still had joy. Because when you look at the founding of the church at Philippi in the book of Acts, some of them were those from the jail. Some of them were businesswomen by the river. They had a different background, but after they became believers, the enemy attacked their money. And now they're not just broke, they're in deep poverty. But what did they do in deep poverty? They maintained their joy. And it says, they abounded unto the riches of their liberality. For to their power, I bear record, yea, and beyond their power, they were willing of themselves, praying us or begging us with much entreaty that we would receive the gift and take upon us the fellowship or the partnership of the ministering to the saints." And this they did not as we hope, but first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. And so much that we desired Titus, that as he had begun, so he would also finish in you the same grace also. So there's a famine going on in Jerusalem. Paul tells us churches we want to be a blessing to the believers at Jerusalem. Because of them, the gospel went all around the world. And although the church in Philippi is in a tight situation, Although they're facing affliction and persecution, they heard this call to give. And notice what verse 1 said. It said the grace of God was on them. The grace of God came upon them for one purpose in this passage. For them to give. The grace of God can move you to give. And so they gave so much, they had to beg Paul to take it. That lets you know that Paul said no. Y'all gone through enough. Keep your money. But this church begged Paul. They probably quoted Paul's sermons. Paul, you said in your message that if we give, this is going to happen. So you need to take what we're given. Go to Philippians chapter (laughs) 4. Philippians chapter 4. So the grace of God motivated them to give. Notice what God promised That church. Verse 11. Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and know how to abound. Everywhere in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. This verse in that context is telling me that I can go through anything and maintain a good attitude by the anointing that's from Jesus. Notwithstanding, you have well done that you did communicate or partner with my affliction. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel when I departed from Macedonia, no church communicated with me as concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sin once and again unto my necessity. Now, Thessalonica, Paul went there right after he left Philippi. And so they had just become new believers and they keep giving and giving to the ministry of Paul. And it says, not because I desire a gift, but I desire fruit that may abound to your account. But I have all abound, I am full, having received of Epaphroditus the things which were sent from you, and odor of a sweet smell, a sacrifice acceptable, well-pleasing to God. So verse 19, which everyone loves to quote, was something that was promised to the Philippian believers because they were givers. Not just because they existed. Not just because they believed. Not because they were saved. But because they were givers. But my God shall supply all your need. The church at Philippi, Macedonia had a big need, a huge need. They had a deep poverty need. But notice what he said, my God shall supply all of that need. But notice Paul made it personal. He said, my God. So the same way my God meets my needs, he's going to meet your needs because you partnered with me. So it doesn't matter how big the need. He said he'll meet it according to his riches in glory or the abundance of glory in Christ Jesus. He'll meet the need by the anointing that's on Jesus. So it doesn't matter what the need is. The anointing can handle it. The anointing's great enough, the anointing's big enough, and this giver tapped into that anointing so that deep poverty can't exist much longer when the anointing is set on it. What can't the anointing do? It is the burden-removing, yoke-destroying power of God. Let's go back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. Some of you should go home tonight and look at your bills and speak the anointing on it. How am I going to pay my student loans by the anointing that's on Jesus? Stop looking to the government to meet all your needs. Look to the anointing. Because the anointing, 1 John 2 says, teaches you. So the anointing can teach you what to do in every circumstance and every situation. It can give you God ideas, concepts, and insights. For the anointing is the Holy Spirit. It's his power. So you run into something you don't know what to do, step back. All right, Holy Ghost, what do you want me to do about it? What do you want me to say about it? Because remember, we looked at Mark chapter 11 last week. Jesus spoke nine words to that fig tree and it dried up. Ask God for the nine words he wants you to speak to your debt. Ask him for the nine words he wants you to speak to your student loans. Ask him for the nine words to speak to your situation. Because what happens when you speak those words, that anointing, that power is released to deal with it. It won't deal with it until you say something. How do I know that? Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit of God was hovering over the waters but nothing happened, right? When did it all change? When God said something. Your situation won't change until you say something. And what are you to say? Well, thus saith the word. Because then you give an opportunity for the power of God, the power of the word, to work in that situation. So James 1 Verse 12, blessed is the man that endures temptation. Remember we said last week the word endure means to stay under. We define endurance as the capacity to remain firm under suffering without yielding to anger, resentment, despair, or self-pity. So in other words, blessed are those that don't cut and run. Notice what says next, for when he is Tried. That phrase, when he has tried, means means, when he has stood the test or when he has passed the test. Some of you wonder why do I keep dealing with the same thing in life because you never passed the test? Why would you promote someone to another grade if they didn't pass the test of the first grade? Someone's like, oh, I want to be in college. You got to get through the first grade first. Tests come. It's part of life. Pass the test. He says, for those who pass the test, there's a blessing. He shall receive the crown of life. The Amplified Classic, it says the victor's crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. So there's a blessing attached to those who don't cut and run but pass the test. There is a blessing for those who remain steadfast and persevere. There is a victor's crown waiting for them. This victor's crown here is the prize that was given to athletes who competed and were victorious in the public games. It was a symbol of honor. God honors those who persevere. When he gives you your crown in heaven, that's him honoring you. He honors those who don't cut and run. People who cut and run, I'm not saying they don't make it to heaven. They'll make it in, but there won't be an honor waiting for them. Because I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You only can be faithful if you don't cut and run. If you get going, when the going gets tough, you're not going to be considered faithful or good. So James now continues his address on testing trials with talking about the character of God. Notice he says, let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. The word tempted here means tested or faced with adversity. So same words we've been looking at before in this passage. Evil is defined as depraved, injurious, bad, harm, ill, or wicked. So he says, don't ever say God is testing you because of the evil adversity you are facing. Or another religious phrase, well, God is teaching me something. Or God did this to me. How many believers keep saying God did this to them? How can you believe God for deliverance if you believe God is the one who did it to you in the first place? How can you believe God for victory if you think God is your enemy? So James is saying, don't no one of you in this adversity, in this affliction that came because you were scattered, because you were persecuted, say, God did this to you. Right? Now, even though a number of them were scattered because they were disobedient, and the enemy had an open door to come in, he says, stop saying God did it to you. God did not do that to you. God is not your problem. He is your answer. But so many believers think it's the will of God for them to suffer. They think it's the will of God for them to be broke, the will of God for them to be sick, the will of God for them to be depressed, the will of God for them to be deceived, the will of God for all these bad things to happen to them. How do you know that? Listen to the gospel radio stations. Sing all these songs, these depressing songs, gospel and contemporary. Everybody's depressed. You listen to it long enough, you're depressed. But that's not God. He says, "Don't let anyone say they were tested or tried or tempted of God." Well, notice what he said in verse 14: "But every man when is tempted, but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed." First, let's define what is the temptation in this context. The temptation is to depart faith. The temptation is to leave your stand of faith and become double-minded. This is still the context. He didn't change directions. That's what the temptation came to do, to make them change their mind about what they believe. The word lust here is defined as longing or desire after what is forbidden. It's not just something that's sexual. Lust is longing or desire after what is forbidden. The word enticed means entrapped. Beguiled or deceived. It means entrapped, beguiled, or deceived. Verse 15 says, then when lust has conceived, that word conceived means to be seized or to clasp. Where it grabs you and it's not letting go. Now, where did this lust come from? Go to Mark chapter 4 verse 19. Because he didn't just switch talking about different subjects when he said the word lust. We're still in the context of people under pressure, of persecution and affliction, which are the first two tactics Satan has to stop the word and the production of the word in your life. Verse 19 lists the other three tactics of Satan. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lust of other, other things, enter in and choke or crowd out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. Verse 18 compares these three things to thorns that come up from the soil. And remember, in this scripture, the soul, soil is the heart of man. So some of the lust that comes in James chapter 1 comes from a person's heart who is, that is uncultivated or an area they have refused to deal with. So the pressure is applied from affliction or persecution, and lust begins to arise arise up because they haven't dealt with it. But lust can also come from the temptation of the enemy. So if he can't make you bow because of the pressure of the circumstance or the pressure of the persecution, he'll try to send something your way to take away your focus. Go back to James. Verse 15, then when lust has conceived, when it has seized the person, when it has collapsed the person, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. So how does a believer get into this position? Remember, he's talking to believers. He's not talking to sinners. They were standing in faith. Pressure came. From affliction and persecution. While trying to endure the pressure, they became double-minded. One day, they're looking at the word. The other day, they're looking at what they're lusting after. And they went after the sinful desire instead of standing in faith. After departing faith, being deceived by lust, which drew them away, the lust grabbed them. They entered into sin, which the lust taught them to do. And they stayed in sin until that sin brought a manifestation of death into their life. Now, the manifestation of death doesn't mean you just die. It's different manifestations of the curse that you see in Deuteronomy 28. It is sickness. It is poverty. It is depression. Those are manifestations of the curse, manifestation of death. That was brought about by sin because, remember, the Bible says the wages of sin is... So... What happened to this believer? They went from a stand of faith to now they look like the rest of the world. Dealing with the manifestations of curse and of death and they are in sin just like they were a sinner before they were saved. That was the purpose of the attack in the first place. To get the believer to back away from the word and back away from faith in God and faith in God's word. So he goes on to verse 16 and says, do not err, my beloved brethren. That word err means to roam, be led astray, be deceived, to wander out the way or be seduced. So don't let lust take your focus away. Don't become double-minded. Don't begin to say it's God's fault I'm in this position in the first place. Because what happens if they begin to say it's God's fault why I'm dealing with this in the first place, then they'll say, well, it doesn't make much sense to live for God anyways. I might as well go do what I actually want to do and go back to the life I so loved. There's no pressure over there. There's no affliction over there. They're not going to persecute me anymore if I go and do what I want to do. But the thing is, if your life was so good before you got saved, you wouldn't have gotten saved. It wasn't that I'm giving up all these good things to follow Jesus. You realize you were a sinner on the way to hell and you couldn't fix your life in the first place. And you saw the need that I need a savior. I need someone to save me from myself. I need someone to save me from the curse. I need someone to save me from hell. Jesus, I choose you. I take you as my Lord. I take you as my Savior. But when the pressure gets tough and when you become unfocused, when you become double-minded, you forget that. So he says, do not err. Don't stagger. Don't go away, my beloved brethren." Why? Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. So don't say God tempted you. Don't say God tested you. He's the one that's sending good and perfect gifts. The message translation called these gifts streams of light that descend from heaven. He's sending these things your way. And in him, there's no variableness, no shadow of turning. meaning he will not change. He's not going to like you one moment and hate you the next moment. It's also defined as he's not fickle. He's consistent. He's faithful. So he didn't just change his mind just to teach you something. Remember, we've been talking about on Sundays the way God teaches his children is through his word. So he didn't send the circumstance your way. He didn't send the persecution your way. Yes, it came, but don't attribute it to God. Because every good and perfect gift think about it in context what do these people need if they're in a a poor situation because of the affliction they need prosperity we looked at it earlier if they don't know what to do they need wisdom if this affliction this persecution has affected their health they need healing if someone is chasing them down they need deliverance they need victory those are the good and perfect gifts God is not the one who caused it, but God said, I will fix it. Even if you put yourself in that situation, I will be your answer, and I will get you out. Because verse 18 goes on and says, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits to his creatures. So don't get it twisted. God didn't send this evil thing your way. He loved you so much, he gave you his word. And by the hearing of the word, you were born again. So he's telling them, God didn't do this to you. He loves you. And he called you out to be the first ones to show forth his goodness, his kindness, his love, and his mercy. And he never changes. We're still talking about the same thing. James is teaching them how to deal with adversity. He's teaching us how to deal with the pressures of life when circumstances come our way. If you're going to be victorious, you have to stay focused. Because if you begin to look at all these other places, you'll be like Peter. The storm is going on. The wind, the rain is raging. He got out the boat. The storm was still going. The storm didn't start after he got out of the boat. The storm was already going. He gets out the boat. He begins to walk. He's doing fine. He's walking on the water. And then he gets distracted and looks at the wind and the waves. The wind and the waves are always going. They didn't start. He just took his focus off Jesus. And what happened when he took his focus off Jesus? It says he began to sink. Why? He's becoming double-minded. He's looking in two places. But notice the mercy of God. He didn't sink automatically. He didn't drown. He began. And he cried out, Lord, save me. And notice, either the Lord wasn't that far away or Jesus translated and grabbed him. Walked him back to the boat, looked at Peter and said, why did you doubt? We repassed that you. It's being very specific. Peter, I expected something more from you. Why did you doubt, Peter? So you're going through circumstances. You're going through affliction. You're going through persecution. Why did you doubt? Has not God proved himself faithful before? Hasn't he shown up for you before? Hasn't he healed you before? Hasn't he provided for you before? Hasn't he delivered for you before? Hasn't he given you wisdom before? Why did you doubt? Why did you stagger? Why did you withdraw from your faith? That's the question he asked. Why did you do it, Peter? He may have expected the other disciples to do it, but he made it very personal. Peter, why did you doubt? doesn't say Peter ever answered that question. But if you become single-minded, you keep yourself in the word day in, day out, like Joshua 1.8 tells us to do. You build your faith. You become single-minded. You will be stable in all your ways. So even if you have to walk on the water, you will stay afloat. It's the power of the word. That's what Peter was walking on. He was walking on the word. Jesus gave him the command, so he walked on that command. You might say, well, there's a storm all around me. Walk on the water. Walk on the word. You can have victory in every area of your life. And building on that, James goes on, verse 19, wherefore, or because of all of these things, my beloved brethren, notice he says that twice in the last few verses. You're loved. My brothers, you are loved. Remember, this is the brother of Jesus telling other people, you're my brother too. And you are Are loved. Then he begins to give him some other instructions, based on all those previous eighteen verses. But we'll get into that next week. Stand to your feet. Oh Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can have victory, no matter the circumstance, no matter the. I hope you enjoyed today's message. If you prayed that prayer and meant it from your heart, we believe you've been born again. We ask that you email us at info at FCCGA.com. That's FCCGA.com to let us know about the decision you've made for Christ today. Have an amazing day.